Hi, and welcome to Power in the City. This is a podcast about the everyday and on the ground ways that people are responding to the climate emergency. It's freezing in my house at the minute. These houses, um, they become poorly, don't they? Because they're not being heated for the, like they should be. With the cost of living and the, the rise of fuel prices, it's, it's really important to make sure that people are doing as much as they can in their homes to make them as efficient as possible. If you insulate a building well, obviously you're going to be reducing carbon emissions and therefore reducing heating bills. The first season is based in Oldham and has five episodes. My name is Hannah. And I'm Brit. Hannah, do you actually know that Oldham is not a city? Hi, Alex. Hi, Brit. How's it going? Good. Welcome to uh, Power in the City. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Um, so Alex is um, my colleague at Carbon Co-op and um, Alex is a journalist. So uh, he's actually the real deal. Well excited to have you. No, the hype is not warranted, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we, uh, we let Alex loose in Oldham um, together with Melissa, our local researcher, to um, find out about do you want to maybe explain? Sure, yeah. Well, we've been hearing a lot about energy bills recently. Many of us have been struggling with them for the best part of a year now. So with them being so high and all of us being so friggin' cold all the time, <laughs> I thought it would be good to use this episode to talk about the home, what we're doing about them to make them warmer and more affordable. And lo and behold, we talk to people in Oldham and they're doing loads about it. All right, like putting on lots of layers, jumpers? Well, well, more insulating the home to make that warmer. So it's like wrapping a blanket around your entire house rather than putting a blanket on yourself. So in a sense, you're not wrong. Oh, wow. I mean, Oldham, isn't Oldham really cold? Like, isn't it even colder than the rest of the UK? Yeah, even colder than Manchester, which is saying something. And as well as keeping you warm and reducing your bills, insulating your home is probably one of the best things you can do for the planet too, because... You're reducing the amount of fossil fuel intensive energy needed to heat it. It's something like 18% of UK emissions come from our homes, which is really, really extraordinary when you think about it. Wow. Yeah, but mostly insulating your home will keep you warm. That's the important thing. They used to put the gas cooker on just to try and keep the kitchen warm because the house got that cold. This is Ibrahim. I'm speaking to him in the neighbourhood of Westwood in central Oldham. Oh, this is, um, we're at the Millennium Centre again. Exactly, yeah. The Millennium Centre, if you don't know it, is a large terracotta brick building on Featherstall Road. Terraced housing surrounds it, along with some new builds. Yeah, we were there for the walking episode. What a brilliant place. Yeah, they're doing so much great work at the moment. Ibrahim has become a bit of an energy champion in his neighbourhood. My name is Ibrahim. I work for the the OBA Millennium Cultural Centre, and part of my job is to sort of work on different projects. And every project that we work on is directly linked with working with the community and bringing about positive change in some way or another, or just improving the lives of people that are living in our communities. Now, one of the ways Ibrahim is serving his community is by looking at how people can make their homes more energy efficient and more comfortable. We sat in on one of the workshops they held with local residents on what it's like living in their homes right now. 
My name is Zakir. Zakir. Um, I've got two um, objectives of attending these sessions. One is make my own house um, energy efficient. I've read up and tried to address a lot of the issues, but I still do have draft problems. So maybe I can learn what to do about those. And the second thing is we support like you know, yeah. a lot of people in our community as yeah. part of our youth organisation. I think it's really interesting that Zakir mentions he's tried doing loads of things himself to sort out his draft problems and also that he clearly understands that other people in his community are going through the same thing and that the community coming together is really important. What is the coldest part of the home? If you think just, just walk yourself, you got home from work, you walk or you just come back from school or whatever it is. Kitchen. Go to the loo, you go to kit, cooking something, sitting in your living room. So you say kitchen. Anyone else? My, my kitchen and my porch. They also start to really dig down into why the house is as cold as it is. So why do you think your kitchens are really cold? Yeah, you probably have more draft there because of holes and pipes and things like that. Yeah, that's exactly it. Same with bathrooms. The the kitchen has less things that can absorb and retain the heat. Mm -hmm. Like all the surfaces are all metal. that's a really another really well, interesting point. For example, the living room or the bedrooms are warmer because they absorb a lot more heat and cleaning like the sofas, the beds, yeah. the carpets. Now, now I'm really struck by how much the people of Westwood know about their homes as energy systems, and it's clearly a great educational resource for them. If you've got any like um, ventilation bricks, ventilation bricks. Yeah, there are two kinds of ventilation bricks. Would the ventilation brick that's like at the very bottom of your house be in the thermal envelope? No, 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 because that's, that's for air to go underneath the house. Exactly. That, has to, that has to stay open. And that's, <coughs> that's so important. Don't go blocking those up, otherwise you'll get rot and mould on your floor and you definitely don't want that to happen. The term thermal envelope they're referring to here is kind of like the layer around a building that controls its temperature. And that's the most critical building element for keeping it warm. Aha, here comes the jumper. Or the layers. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so what we have is, we just have like a, a, a water layer. So there's like a brick that's slightly different colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it literally has like a, the, water, you know, the water membrane. Like a de- damp proof Damp proof yeah. yeah. So, so I remember because when, when the landscape... Is it like quite a new house? 70s. Oh, okay, yeah, so that's different. Yeah, so yeah. then he, he literally, and he said, so he's like, Two bricks, he said, or oh, whatever you do, don't build above that, that's okay. your water level. Yeah. And then it's just concrete. But I, I don't like concrete because it's freezing. The kitchen yeah. is freezing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if it was timber floor, then I think it'd be warm. When we talk retrofit in the, in the building aspects, we talk about the energy efficiency. This is Mark Cox, a site manager at B4 Box, which is a construction company based in Stockport. Obviously, retrofit means to take something old and bring it up to the new standards. I couldn't really have put it better myself. It's a bit of a trend term, isn't it, retrofit? So it's good to hear from the horse's mouth what it actually means. Mark says all it really means is, in retrospect, fitting something new to an existing thing. So this could also be done to a car, let's say. But in the construction world, the term is used for a specific type of refurbishment that substantially improves the energy efficiency of a building. And in particular, reducing the amount of energy we spend on heating or cooling it and rectifying one of the issues we hear identified in the workshop. No, it might be external wall insulation, internal wall insulation, ceilings, floors. You know, there might be stuff for ground source to go in. 
Mark refers to heat pumps here, which are kind of an, an efficient form of electric heating that can be fitted. It's about the energy efficiency and the saving money, but also the comfort. Mm. You, want, you want to feel that comfort in your home, don't you? Oh, that's so true. Comfort. That's so important. Mark and his colleague, Orianne Landers, another site manager at B4 Box, tell me how important this work is, especially now that fuel prices are so high and people just don't turn their heating on at all anymore. They're worried for people's health and they're worried for the building's health as well. These houses, then, they become poorly, don't they? Because they're not being heated for the, like they should be. And then the houses get worse, the houses yeah, yeah. get damp. They, they get damp, they get cold. That, then that leads to people develop, work, yeah, developing illnesses yeah. as well. So it's a bit like being a doctor. This is Eileen, the founder of B4 Box. If you said to any doctor, build me a new body, it would look amazing. But what doctors get is bodies that have had things that have happened to them. So they need diagnosis and then they need all manner of things. It is the same with the building. The diagnostics matter. And then what you do with the building matters. And it's highly skilled because you don't want to make any problems worse. So an example of that would be if you insulate a building well, obviously you're going to be reducing carbon emissions and therefore reducing heating bills and basically reducing fuel use. But you could create a different problem if you're not careful, such as damp, mould, or infestation of little critters. Oh, I love that um, analogy of the doctor. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it really shows just how important this is and I think captures the care and attention we should see with retrofit. It's not like a standard thing that you do because every house is completely different and some just need more work than other, others. So we'll just go off what the survey that Mark does and see how, you know, how hard we have to rip out or not rip out. Yeah, so, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, every archetype is different. Every property, every, every the fabric of every building is different. The people that have lived in the properties are different. You know, some... some you know, you might have had an old person in there who's been on their own. Sometimes you can have, you might have had a family or five or six. So repairs, upkeep of the property, they're always different. Oh, yeah. That's so insightful, isn't it? Because, of course, every property is different, but also every person's way of using that property is different. So I guess that makes really clear how sensitive that is as a as a job to get that right and to make it so that people, you know, uh, continue to be comfortable or, or, or are more comfortable than they were before using that house, living in that house. Yeah, and, to, and just to make sure that the house works for them, yeah. ultimately. We, we've seen there's an appetite to do something to make homes more energy efficient in Oldham. So what's holding people back, I asked Ibrahim. So cost is like the first one. More than anything, cost would be the first one. Because it is a an area which is one of the worst deprived, you know, in terms of multiple deprivation. You've got many, many low-income households. Yeah, I think people don't have the luxury of spending that money on, on sort of retrofitting. He gives one example to illustrate the kind of financial situation some households he works with are in. They've got 
two boys, two girls, and their parents. So six people living in a two-bed house. So I think they used the downstairs room as a bedroom. So like a pull-out sofa. The father works. The mother, she's put her through herself through sort of education. And she's sort of doing some skills and courses to try and get into employment. And he explains the family had damp in their home. And despite throwing thousands of pounds at it, they just couldn't work out what was causing it. Every time they brought someone in to sort of identify the problem, they couldn't identify it and they just gave him a job. So the roof guy said, oh no, it's just your roof. It needs taking off and redoing again. So they paid for that for no reason. And that would have cost them like five, six thousand pounds. Then somebody said, oh no, you need to do the pointing again. So they literally repointed the whole sidewall. So literally, you know, they had scaffolding built up and they had all that done. And then they did the whole inside of the property where they sort of stripped it all down to the bare brick and then just did it all up again. It was completely moldy and damp. And it's only very later that they brought in, you know, they brought in different people. And eventually one person, he's a contractor and he's a family friend of the actual family. And so I reckon he just gave genuine advice because he wasn't looking to make any money out from the job. And he actually said, look, looking at your house, and he did measurements and everything. And he said, look, you've got no cavity wall on this side of the wall. So it's just a bare wall. And then that's the inside of your house. So you've literally got no cavity. So that's why your house is getting damp. No matter how much you sort of try and point the wall and stuff, there's just no barrier between your house and the of the outside. It's just that's the wall. And I think it's really interesting just to give us a flavour of the quality of housing that people are living in at the moment in Oldham, as well as the the lack of knowledge or lack of trust in, in people's social circles. Absolutely. Ibrahim explains that funding from either national or local government would really help get the worst homes warmer. I think if it came in the form of a partial grant or if the council said what we'll do is we want to retrofit the property, we're willing to give you 80% or 70% or 60% and the remaining 40% we can create a sort of payment plan. I think if there was something of that structure, it would work. Now, these government grants do exist to some degree. They kind of come in and out periodically, but they're not really being accessed as much as you'd hope because people don't know about them or they don't know if they're eligible. It's difficult to work out if they're eligible. It's difficult to find the people to do the work and often you need to fund it up front. So for example, the government's Green Homes Grant was scrapped having reached just 10% of the 600,000 homes then Chancellor Rishi Sunak promised would be improved. Yeah, that is such a massive problem, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the kind of work that we do at Carbon Co-op and we work with householders who are what we call early adopters, like people that have the bandwidth, have the time, or also have the bit, little bit of extra money to be able to, um, you know, work with their house and take that time. Even they say, wow, this is a really complex and like, you know, who's the right contractor and what does that, can I do it in stages and where do I start and where do I end and and the interruption in my house, all of these things are massive, aren't they? And imagine if you, you know, have like a big family and job and education and all of that going on, um, how are you possibly going to be able to also research a grant and find out how to spend that money on your home? It's almost impossible, yeah, totally agree. Ibrahim then tells me about another barrier, 
which is people living in rented accommodation. If they're living in a uh, sort of like a council property or a property which belongs to a housing association, then, well, that then comes down to the housing association. For those that are private rent, that, that, that's not going to happen because private rent in this area notorious for creating a standard where take it as it is or you can leave. As someone who rents, I know exactly what he's getting at here. <laughs> Absolutely. However, one of the stories he tells me really stands out. We had one property where the porch was unusable because the roof had been leaking for so long that it had partially collapsed. The water was leaking onto the floor, which meant that the floor was then the the sort of the concrete was brittle and it was cracking, and the whole the porch was a like a wooden construction, so the whole timber was rotting. But the landlord wouldn't fix the property because the couple that lived there they were quite elderly actually. He wasn't fixing it because he was saying that oh well they're falling back on their rent, so. I'm not going to, I'm not in a position to fix anything. God, that's awful. Right. And that's before we've even begun to consider the language and cultural barriers many people in Westwood encounter. A lot of the times, a lot of people, the residents, they just don't understand what's happening when when their bills are really high or also a lot of the times you'll have younger children who will do a lot of the sort of communicating so if you need to ring the council or you need to ring the energy provider, it's normally a child that's talking on behalf of the parent. And uh, children, obviously, depending on their age, might not be able to grasp the understanding and depth of what they need to talk about and discuss. So it just helps if there's a place where people can come and just get free advice, free help. We're there to sort of just help them along the way and you know give them as much support as possible. So this is why retrofit isn't happening. So what are some of the solutions? Well, Ibrahim told us the Millennium Centre will be running what they call energy cafes on Saturdays soon to help people get this free advice that he's talking about and sort of seize the opportunity to make their homes warmer when it arises. So we can visit people's homes, do a quick assessment of their home and give them really individual bespoke advice on how they can sort of make their homes more energy efficient. It's also linked up with the, with the Oldham Council and Housing Association. So so we'd be able to sort of signpost them and sort of link them up to other services which will be beneficial to them. We'd also help them with sorting their bills and stuff out where, you know, if they need to call um, their bill provider and talk about, you know, what tariff they're on or you know, if they're having trouble making payments, you know, what supports, so what support is that for them? So we've got different services available. Oh, that's brilliant. I think it's so um, important that you have, you know, all the different, you have the people from the community working together with housing associations, working together with the council to, to create these sort of, I don't know, like connections of trust between the different elements and, and, and work on it together. Yeah, definitely these kind of community assets that can really help people. I think I think a really important thing to bear in mind here as well is that you don't have to go the whole hog and do a deep retrofit and make it super energy efficient, which does cost tens of thousands of pounds. You can do stuff that can bring you up 
you know, can save you energy and can bring the performance of your own up. Well, sometimes that's not relatively a lot of money. You know, sometimes it might just be, you know, a, a little bit of loft insulation, you know, done correctly, tops up, um, some draft proofing. You know, there is some basic stuff you can do just to make your house sometimes feel that little bit, yeah, little bit, yeah, a little bit of air tightness. Then little measures are done and then further down the line, you could maybe look to do a few more, you know, sometimes it, it might take the pro, you know, some people might not have it all done at once and want that upheaval to the life. So it might be that into four or five stages, you know, we'll do some little insulation measures and draft proofing and some air tightness. Then they might go down the route of, you know, a bit of further, like, you know, might be external wall insulation, new windows, then they might start, you know, building towards the end where they might want ground source or air source heat pumps, some PV. Ah, uh, yeah, I like that message. Um, people are more in control maybe than they think of how they implement this over time. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel it's so important to give people the sense that they can, they can move in the right direction with these kinds of small scale, low cost measures or dipping your toe in the water as Orian puts it. Ibrahim mentioned housing associations and I began to wonder whether there was anything we could learn from the local social housing sector. After all, on the last episode, we talked to First Choice Homes Oldham and all of the wonderful work they were doing with solar power. I spoke to Claire at Onward Homes, which has homes in Oldham. I'm Claire Rainsford. I work for an organisation, social housing landlord, called Onward Homes. So we have th over 30,000 homes across the northwest. And my job, sustainability manager. So that means I get involved in all sorts of things in terms of corporate sustainability and carbon footprint to actually retrofit for homes, funding, uh, all manner of things in terms of sustainability. Claire gave us a sense of what kinds of buildings a social housing provider like Onwards is managing and some of the complexities that throws up. It's a real mixed bag. We've got new homes as well, which are, you know, highly energy efficient to then some older ones, which we have, you know, grade, grade two listed buildings. We have, you know, other listed buildings, which could be, you know, 1900s or even 1800s, those sorts of things. So it's a real mixed bag. And those are the hard to treat properties. What do you do with them, particularly if there are restrictions on them as well and solid wall properties as well? And we got some really interesting insights into why it's so difficult insulating old historic buildings those are really tricky because you you can't start putting insulation externally on you know beautiful exteriors of buildings so how do you do that internally um you can do that but then you can have um how do you make sure you don't lose space it sounds like quite a big logistical challenge actually it does doesn't it now, I came to Onward Homes because I'd heard they were submitting a joint bid with other social housing providers in Greater Manchester for government money to fund retrofit. We've just put a bid in to, through the Greater Manchester Combined Authority for something called Social Housing Decarbonisation Funds. Now, just to demystify this, the £1 billion Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund comes from central government and enables housing associations to provide upgrades such as external wall insulation to council homes in their area with an energy performance certificate rating of C or below. Energy performance certificate? Oh yeah, they're the kind of rainbow coloured ratings you get when you buy or rent a property. Oh yeah, of course. So, so running from A, which indicates a good level of thermal performance, yeah, yeah, all the way down to G, which means it's really, really bad. 
Speaking to Claire, I started to get a real sense that collaboration and collective action in the sector would be key to scaling up retrofit. We've come all together as a collective across homes, loads of other homes in Oldham and Greater Manchester area, to actually ask the government for money to help us support the work that we're doing. And she expands on some of the benefits for housing providers of working collectively. We were sharing information with some of the other providers in Oldham, the wider GMCA as well. Also as well, you know, what's practical? How can we make sure that we're tackling areas as a whole rather than doing things piecemeal? And we get the cost benefits of working together. And also it was a huge amount of help as well, I should say, from GMCA in terms of pulling all the partners together, making sure that all the information was in the correct format and so on. So really interesting things there about economies of scale, which we'll touch on in a bit. But something else that really came through speaking to Claire was that housing providers will also have to collaborate with householders because going into someone's home and making changes to it, that's going to require consent. It's a real mixture depending on the neighbourhood, how people want to engage. I mean, we have a neighbourhood and they've been super engaged. You know, it's anything from Facebook. We've got the consultation events. We've got customer champions And they're very much integral to the whole process. So it's, yeah, it's super critical because in terms of we're delivering a program of retrofit works, gaining access to properties is key. Yeah, this is um, actually what Simon also spoke about in the solar episode from First Choice Homes, who also do a lot of retrofit. And and he was saying it's so important that um, people have trust that this might might be a good thing happening in their home and so the first experience of the people uh, uh, doing their homes is then really important to pass on to other people that this was good and was a good process yeah Um, it travels by word of mouth absolutely and it and and again you know i think there is a lot of um space for people like ibrahim in that process who um can help develop that trust Absolutely. And as Claire explains, not engaging with people can mean that they miss out. If if we can't gain access, that can throw a whole program out because then we have to go somewhere else. It also means that we might have one house that does hasn't benefited from retrofit and yet others have, which can affect others. So the social housing sector is getting its act together to retrofit homes. But what about people who privately rent? or owner-occupiers, what help is there for them? I'm Jonathan Atkinson. I'm one of the co-founders of Carbon Co-op. I've mostly focused on retrofit and energy efficiency, both in terms of like helping people with advice and signposting, but also being involved in project managing some quite large construction schemes that we've run over the years as well. Now, Jonathan tells me about some of the problems we see when social housing tenants have retrofit, but private rented or owner occupiers don't. So in some areas, you'll have houses that were owned by the council, but through things like right to buy and and other kind of mechanisms, some of those properties are now owned by owner occupiers. Conversely, you'll also get areas where in, in past times, housing associations have bought properties and some some properties have remained in the hands of owner-occupiers. So you'll, you get typically in, in cities like Manchester and Oldham and, and other northern cities, this term pepper pot. So in a given area, some properties will be owned by a housing provider, uh, some won't be. Okay, so in essence, what Jonathan 
seems to be saying is if you don't have the money saved up and you're not a social housing tenant, you miss out on insulating your home? Precisely. And that's unfair, he says. There's lots of energy justice and kind of social justice uh, reasons why just because people live in different tenures, in different kind of properties, one neighbour is their their landlord is a social housing provider, the neighbour next to them, it's a private rental. Is there any kind of difference in the lived experience of those people in their in their kind of wealth, in their privilege? It, it, because they live in a similar street, they're likely to have similar kind of experiences. And yet we're saying neighbour one, they are eligible, neighbour two, they aren't eligible. And, and there's an unfairness to that. And there are practical problems with this as well. In a pepper pot circumstance where you can only tell certain numbers of people on a street that they are eligible and others are not, what you start to get is suspicion. Like, why am I eligible and other people aren't? You also lack that kind of friends and family kind of effect where, oh, I've told my neighbour about this scheme and they said, well, we're not, we're not eligible, so we're not doing it. And I'm, I am eligible, but now I'm thinking, should I be doing it? So, so you get a lower uptake. There's a fantastic academic called uh, Professor Brenda Boardman who's done fantastic work in this area and looked at successive waves of engagement with an area where, to start with, only 50% of people are available for a scheme. And then 50% of the, those reply to engagement activities. And then 50% of those sign up to works. And suddenly you're down to very low numbers and, uh, and we know that there are certain critical scales for delivering retrofit in terms of organising the work and making it effective. Critical scales. What does that mean? Now oh, hold your horses, Brett. That's coming. When fewer houses on a street sign up, there are, there are barriers then to the supply chain. What you'd want to do in an area is you'd want a, a builder or a contractor to go house by house, working through the street, potentially working on a number of houses at the same time, setting up a site at the end of the road, being able to store materials, aggregate labour, have a, have a fixed point of work. You know, the people who are doing the work, they know where they're coming every day, they're not moving around. All those things mean that you, you gain uh, economies of scale, really, by doing lots of properties together. Uh, and it makes it just makes more sense as well from from a wider environmental point of view. This goes back to the problem Ibrahim alludes to about there being a lack of a trusted contractor base in the in the area. And Carbon Co-op are piloting what they call an area-based scheme, which looks like another really interesting project. We are focusing a scheme within a certain area of Levenshume in South Manchester, and what we're doing there is saying if you live in these streets you might be eligible to take part in this in this scheme. What we will be offering is a set of improvements to your property, insulation to the walls, solid wall insulation, potentially PVs, potentially windows and, and air tightness works to improve the energy efficiency. The first wave of this project is likely to be around 12 properties, but then we're looking to extend it much broader throughout that area. And they're also going to be helping people get the money to fund this. When you're trying to find the finance, what that means is bringing different money from different sources. So a housing provider will have some money 
to to improve houses in a certain area. The local authority may have some money. The government may have some money. Even people like the the local energy board, the distribution network operator, they may have some money as well. It does mean a bit of legwork. What you're trying to do is bring together uh, funds from disparate sources so that you can offer a very simple kind of package at the on the front end. And then there's that difficult question of finding builders to do the work. On the other side, what we're doing is working with a, a team of architects to design the work and design a specification for the work. Then we're going out and we're talking to builders and contractors and we're talking to one in particular who is a, a social enterprise who works in the local area who's able to both do the works and also train up local people as well. So retrofits can create local jobs as well, no? That's amazing. Yeah, food for thought. I think we could create something like 467,000 jobs in retrofit, including hundreds of thousands of trade-oriented jobs like carpentry, plastering, joinery. Jonathan had some final thoughts on how other people, say in Oldham, might replicate Carbon Corp's area-based scheme. The first thing to do is to assess an area to find out which is the right area both technically in terms of the housing stock but also in terms of the people Um, you really need to involve people right from the off um, to make this a success so it's talking to both local community organizations the local authority very importantly but also local people as well individuals And, and a lot of that has to be done by getting out there onto the streets, talking to people and understanding what their needs are and what their benefits are. This is so um, often the thing that we just don't think about enough, no, the skill of engagement, the skill of, you know, the thing that Ibrahim knows how to do, for example, how to build trust, bring people together, like it's, you know, the soft skills, but maybe they're not really that soft Yeah, exactly. It's both a social and a technical challenge in in a sense. But this seems like a really promising collaborative approach to to tackling that. And what Jonathan says about this being community oriented, grounded in the community, really chimes with something Eileen told us. If I was your audience now, I'd be thinking, yeah, but that's not scalable, is it? And the answer is, of course it is. Because it looks like top down is the way you scale. But for this activity, I would argue it's got to be bottom up. It's got to be community by community. In fact, it's got to be house by house. And therefore, there's there's something about moving to volume in the decarbonisation of housing that starts with the granular expression of how is this working best for the house, for the householder, and for the workers who work on it, and for the people who are being trained on it, you get that right, and it's repeatable from the bottom up. And I think that the scale-up that will result from that will become easier by there being some very good collaborative models being developed rather than the simplistically top-down volume approach, which won't take account of some of the better innovation that's happening. So it seems counterintuitive, 
But scaling up, she says, means doing it by person by person, home by home, neighborhood by neighborhood. Hmm. That's really interesting. And, and she also speaks about, which so many people speak about, no? like the, pa the power of a really good collaboration, mm. the power of a really good partnership, you know, between the, uh, the people um, commissioning the work, the contractors, the um, people working in it, uh, the homeowner, all of that as a sort of... An ecosystem. Yeah, like mm. a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, I, I know you said it's counterintuitive, but in a way, I actually think it's, it is intuitive. Mm. Yeah, um, when you think about it for a bit, yeah. Yeah, when you think about it also from the kind of scale of a human being, which is quite important, I think, in order to get these things right. Have we come to the end? Yes, we have come to the end. But I think some final thoughts from me are that retrofit seems a long way away for a lot of people who are really cold in expensive to run homes and there doesn't seem to be any help out there for them. But I think there are definitely, and there's no pun intended here, green shoots emerging in Oldham. <laughs> particularly, and in Greater Manchester more broadly, in the form of what we've seen, really, energy cafes giving people these small positive steps to feeling empowered. Builders like B4Box giving people advice on approaching things in stages. Social housing retrofit programmes getting money from the government and area-based schemes catering to everyone so no one's left behind. So I think, like you say, it, it, it's a massive challenge and it's going to require a lot of collaboration from a lot of people and it will cost a lot. But I think the foundations are there mm. in a sense. I don't know if you have any thoughts. No, I agree with you. I am. Um, I'm, I'm leaving this episode feeling really quite hopeful and positive. So um, thank you so much, Alex. That was no brilliant. problem. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Power in the City is produced by Carbon Co-op and funded by the Electricity Northwest Powering Our Communities Fund, EGLAY Action Fund and UCL's Grand Challenges. This episode was written and produced by Alex King and hosted by me, Britt Evenson. Local research and interviews Melissa Kelly Shaw, sound design and post-production by Barry Han. You can find a list of all episode contributors and lots of additional information and links in the show notes. Tune in for the last episode of this season on the 23rd of February 2023. It's about work. <laughs>